Well, we have spent quite a bit of time in Bethany, a lot more than I anticipated doing. Um, in just a few verses here at the beginning of chapter 12 of John. And we come now to what is often considered the official beginning of the Passion Week of our Lord, and that is with the triumphal entry. I want to really wrap up a little bit of what we've been studying the last few weeks by looking at the few verses just prior to verse 12 uh, in chapter 12, and that is, uh, let's go back to verse 9. It says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, referring to Jesus, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out. And we're going to stop right there for this time being. I see you're right in the middle of a verse. It's okay, we'll get to what they cried out here in a moment. But we want to look first of all at this crowd because it really is a carryover from the event prior uh, where we find Jesus um, declaring, being anointed, remember, and, this, and being worshipped in this fashion, uh, yet also the evidence of the betrayal being um, sparked there or at least uh, smoldering underneath everything. And Jesus Christ uh, declaring evidently, very plainly, that he is about to die. I'm being anointed for my burial. I don't know how you can be buried without dying first. So he's made it very clear. And yet it still hasn't sunk in to many of them. And in fact, we're going to see a little later on, a few weeks away, that it still isn't clear to um, his disciples, even some of his most inner ones, of what he is saying. Um, the text itself says, when we get to verse 16, that the disciples don't get any of it. They just don't understand. They did not understand what was going to happen at the travel entry. They didn't understand the night before. They're just clueless, it seems like, and uh, because they have their own agenda. We're going to talk about that here in a little while. But uh, we come to this group that's carried over from the night before, and we, we find what comprises this multitude that's going to, uh, that Jesus is going to encounter on his way into Jerusalem the following morning. And they are comprised of several groups, and we automatically know that his disciples are there. Clueless as they are, they're there. They, they don't understand what's about to happen, that this is the official entry of Jesus into fulfilled prophecy into Jerusalem. So there is an official royal entrance. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So that they can officially reject him as their king. That this is all very, very precise fulfillment of prophecy for that purpose. And the disciples don't get it. But they're there. And so part of this group that is going to be part of the, of the procession into Jerusalem are Jesus' disciples. His, his inner sanctum of 12 that he has taught now for years. He, they have seen all that he has done, and yet one among them is a betrayer, and all of them are 
struggling to really understand at all what's going on. We hear talk about toddlers having selective hearing. That they, 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 hear, they can hear an ice cream scoop of ice cream hit a bowl um, from three rooms away, but they can't hear you yell their name to come and obey. Uh, that's selective hearing. But the fact is, all of us have selective hearing. We hear what we want, and we interpret it the way we want, and there are consequences to that. And the disciples were no different. They heard what they wanted to hear. They ignored what they didn't like or didn't understand, didn't investigate it. Uh, They only wanted to hear. And that's true of every sermon I preach, and I know that, that each of you are walking out, uh, and and I've often wanted to do like a... uh, survey following the service. Can you tell us me the major themes and points of the sermon you just heard? Not the next day, not even an hour later, on your way out. Just to see how many people had thought what the sermon was about, how many views I had. Um, the, and again, it's even worse because here I'm going to use um, something you're not ever supposed to do. We're dealing with a, with a Jewish community. Okay? And so, what's the old adage that if you have 12 Jewish men, you have 14 opinions? Um, and so, uh, I know that's generalization, but uh, when we come to this and we recognize the circumstances, that's the inner part of this procession. They're there uh, with Jesus as this is unfolding. But I want you to note that they are not really the ones that are engaging in it. They are there following Jesus Christ, uh, perhaps yelling this out, crying this out. Um, but they are really there. They have been employed by Jesus to go get the donkey and all that. So they're there. Who else is in this great multitude that's going to uh, encounter Jesus Christ? And John gives us some clue to this. And it's often missed by many of us because we don't pick up on it really very quickly. In the beginning of verse 9, it says, Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there. You might say, well, everybody there was Jewish. So the Jews, uh, Jews knew. But John is using this a very technical way. For John, there were Jews, very technically, uh, are not just all Israelites. So Jews... When you use the term Jews, you're really referring only to the tribe of Judah. The rest of them are Israelites. When modern Israel was getting ready to come into existence following World War II, there was a great discussion on what are we going to name our country, and because they wanted to name it Judah. But then they also had Israel. We're going to name one of those. And they discerningly chose Israel because it's not just the country of the Jews. So if you hate the Jews, who you really hate is the tribe of Judah. Okay, so most of the disciples, the 12, uh, were from the region of Galilee, and so they were Galileans. And so, and John will refer to them as that, as the Galileans. And he'll refer to the outside people. And so te- this is a very technical phrase for him. Many of the Jews, whenever you use that, he usually is talking about the Jerusalemites, the people who are resident in the city and in the regions around Jerusalem. And remember, Jesus has had two very distinct ministries paralleling each other. 
throughout the Gospel of John. And now we get to the latter chapters of John, we're going to see this worked out. So he has his ministry outside of Judah, outside of the, of the regions of Jerusalem. And they have been extraordinary, super responsive, multitudes following him, and, and people being very receptive. Everywhere they go, things are just happening, happening, happening. you got Gentiles coming in, uh, and, and Jesus performing miracles on their behalf, and, and we have people visiting him, and we have huge crowds. We have baptism going on, lots of activity, lots of responsiveness to him, and then there is the Jerusalem ministry. And John says, then he went up to Jerusalem. So over here at Jericho, over there at Ephraim, over there in, in, in Galilee and the other side of the Jordan, all those kinds of ministries were very productive for Jesus Christ. And he was very secure in those places. No one was really um, threatening him at all. But when he gets to Jerusalem... He's got a whole different group. This is the stronghold for the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not to say there weren't any others out there. Remember, the Pharisees would send people out there because they were hearing this stuff about this great prophet out there who, was, who John identified. And so they were sending emissaries out there to hear and to engage him. But the stronghold for them was Jerusalem. This is where your Sanhedrin resided the leadership of Jerusalem, your priests and, and the high priests um, and the, your scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Um, this is the ruling class of Israel, not just um, religiously, but even uh, politically, even though they did so underneath the umbrella of the Romans. So um, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, very different kind of ministry, very, very uh, con conflict-oriented. He comes in, he cleanses the temple. He says, you whitewashed sepulchers. He, he is, and he is engaging them. He is doing things purposely on the Sabbath, kind of picking a fight with these leadership. And he is calling them out for their disobedience. And if any of these people engage him, remember John chapter 3, they do it in secret, not openly. And so people will travel from a great distance out here to visit with Jesus. They'll dig through the roof of a ceiling to get down to Jesus. Um, they'll do all these things out there. When you get to Jerusalem, you got, you're, you're, and you really want to talk with Jesus, you go out there secretly like Nicodemus. Very different kind of ministry. So what John is saying here is that among this multitude, now we have the Jews. And look how he describes them. He says, many of the Jews knew that he was there, okay, that is in Bethany, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. He's a local man. Is Jesus a local guy? No, he's from Nazareth. He's not a local. Lazarus, Nazareth, and Lazarus. Boy, those got, for some reason, I got those two crossed in my brain right there. Uh, so Lazarus was a local he lived in Bethany, right there on the other side of the, uh, uh, near the Mount of Olives, right up next to Jerusalem. They wanted to see him also, uh, and seeing Jesus was an added benefit, but remember, he's that troublemaker from Galilee. They didn't even know where he was from. Remember that discussion? We don't know where this man's from. He, he could be anybody. Um, 
but we know Lazarus, so they come there. <clears throat> um, and they wanted to see a guy that had been dead four days and raised again. And then we look down at verse 11, though. Well, let's read verse 10. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also. They wanted, uh, by the way, you might say, well, if he put Lazarus to death, he, the guy had already been dead once. Couldn't he just be raised again? But it's also, they were going to put Jesus to death and then Lazarus. So now you have the man who raised him dead and you have the man who was raised dead. So now you have eliminated the entire witness of this very powerful event happening right before the Passover. So, here we go. You ready? Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now, what does went away mean? They went away from what? From who? From where? These are not just everybody. These are Jerusalemites. The Jews went away from the chief priests and magistrates. Their influence was waning. Some of their most loyal followers were like, I mean, you can't really argue with, the guy was dead. Four days, he stunk. And now he's alive. I mean, I can see you crossing swords with this prophet over what you're allowed to do or not to do in, in, on the Sabbath, and I'm kind of on your side there because that's our traditions. But I mean, come on, this is a dead man walking around. And they went away from being loyal to the Pharisees, to the Sanhedrin, to the priests, and believing in Jesus. Now, I want you to notice that that is a recent activity, only since the resurrection of Lazarus. They were on the side of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were very loyal to them, is the evidence. They went away from them. Uh, they were, some of them might have even been their very disciples. Now, let me get, get an image for you of what the life of a high Pharisee or rabbi was. Um, a rabbi and Pharisees, these men, um, had a following just like Jesus, just like John the Baptist. They would have their disciples and that they would instruct. And so they would become followers of rabbi so-and-so. And this is still the case today in, in, among the Orthodox uh, community uh, of Judaism. So you have these, these rabbis with their uh, entourage around them. And you know one of them. One of them was Saul of Tarsus, who was a follower of Gamaliel. And we've already met him. Gamaliel is on the Sanhedrin, and that means that among these people was a guy named Saul. Saul didn't just drop into Jerusalem, you know, a couple years later. He was already there, a student. He was one of those who was being taught and instructed in the area of a Pharisee in the background. So when you think about this going away, the chief priests uh, and the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees that all had their little entourage were losing some of them off to Jesus because of the power of the resurrection of Lazarus. That testimony alone. And you might then understand why Saul was so vehemently against Christians. Those would have been some of his fellow 
his peers following his favorite rabbi or Pharisee or priest. So he hated them. He hated Jesus. He was right on board with this, let's kill Lazarus also. But that's who these people were. So we hear the Jews here that are gathering to join Jesus or, or receive Jesus in the triumphal entry. We're talking about some recent, who were very Jewish, Jewish Jerusalemites, recently believing in Jesus, really only because of the resurrection of Lazarus, and they still had some issues with Jesus' teaching. Um, but you can't argue at some point with, the man was dead, now he's alive. There's also another group here, and there's a great multitude that had come to the feast in verse 12. So here comes a great multitude of, of people who came to the feast. Where did they come from? Well, they would have come from all over the Roman Empire and even beyond it uh, to come to Jerusalem. This is the high feast of Israel. Every Israelite male is supposed to be there uh, for this event. This is one of the top three. This is the top of the top three. So if you're ever going to miss an event, you're not going to miss Passover. Maybe, maybe Feast of uh, Tabernacles late in the fall, but not this one. This is one you're going to get to. Is, Jerusalem itself would swell, uh, according to Josephus, to over a million people. Uh, in the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which happened right in the spring, right in the midst of Passover, uh, one of the things that had happened is it had swelled right before Titus cut it off, and all those people were trapped in Jerusalem. And Josephus says 1.1 million people were killed were in Jerusalem because they were trapped there, having pilgrimaged there for that. Um, and so we have a huge group of people who are coming from outside. Some have heard about Jesus, but there's another group there. You remember all those people on the other side of the Jordan, all those people up around Galilee, all those people up in Ephraim, all of those people down in Jericho where Jesus Christ had successfully and safely and powerfully ministered with many believing, uh, were all filtering into Jerusalem. These were eyewitnesses. Not just, I heard about Jesus. I was there when the guy picked up and walked. I, was, I saw these. They were those who, had, who hadn't just heard about him, but had actually seen him, had followed Jesus. They were the multitudes who heard the Sermon on the Mount, which was up in Galilee. If you go there today, you can go, and there's a funny little Catholic church there at the top, um, but you can see the nice little bowl, perfectly situated, um, and that he could speak to thousands without amplification. Acoustically perfect of where the Sermon on the Mount was given. They heard that sermon. They've been following Jesus, not for a few days or a week, but for years they have followed him. And here they come into Jerusalem. This is what this multitude is comprised of. Jesus' disciples, recent converts, who eyewitnesses of his outer ministry. We have a multitude who have never had contact with Jesus there. This is a completely mixed group. I want you to get that picture in your mind 
of what Jesus is coming to, uh, and what's in receiving him, is so as when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. All these people, some knew he was planning to come in. The disciples certainly knew that. Um, others had heard it. Jesus is coming in. Jesus, and they're just filtered, just flooding out of the city gates. Um, they know where he's at. He's in Bethany. Everyone knows that. And so they're coming in and they're just filling this entire valley. And all the way up from the gate, all the way up the side of the hill, going up to the Mount of Olives. And even today, when you go to Jerusalem, one of the things that every tour, every single tour guide will do, they don't want you to see Jerusalem until you've been to the Mount of Olives. They will almost invariably, if you're on a tour, take you over to the Dead Sea side. They'll drive you up the deserted thing. You say, there's nothing out here. They drive you around the backside of the Mount of Olives. So your first view of Jerusalem is from the Mount of Olives. Because that is the best view of the Temple Mount and the old city. And it is just gorgeous. So this is where we're at. They're just filling up this whole valley. And by the way, this whole hillside that Jesus would have traveled down to get to that is just packed with all these churches, the Church of the Holy Onions, the Church of the... Uh, it just because that's what it looks like. It's, it's not called the Church of the Holy Onions. Church of the Nations, the Church of this, Church of that. It's just packed with all these places you can visit today uh, where supposedly things happen. And so um, the, the, this thing is just filled with this multitude, they want to see Jesus. This is not just a crowd of three or four deep along an, a, one little roadway. The road, you don't go straight down this hill. You go like this because it's a steep hill. And then you come up like this. And as Christ is traveling, this is the crowd that he is encountering. And then John tells us what other, the others did not. The others focused more on the donkey, and we'll see why the, the donkey's colt, actually, uh, why. But uh, John tells us that they're the one that, that they laid palm branches. And it's very emphatic. If we translated this literally, it would say he, they took palm branches of palm trees. He has said it twice, and uh, that meant something. Those don't really grow on that hillside very much. This is the Mount of Olives. And even on the Temple Mount today, olive trees, olive trees, where do the palms grow? Well, they had to have brought them from somewhere. These people came to this event prepared to do this. This is not something they just, oh, look, here's a palm, and throw a branch down. They had to make some preparations for this. They heard that Jesus was coming, uh, whether it was from the disciples as they came in to get the, uh, the animal for him to ride, um, but they made some excursions around um, to bring these into this area. Uh, they, and by the way, this is normally is done during the Feast of Tabernacles because they would take palm branches and build their little tents and, and the palms are very um, extensively used during that time. 
and uh, some have conjectured that they were brought in specifically for these high times of worship, um, and so they are readily available, um, which may very well be the case, but either any, in any case, they still had to go get them. And so they are coming with palm branches. Those that aren't equipped with those are using their own apparel, and they're going to put them down. What is this all about? This is all the royal reception of Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is his royal entry into the city. And I want to say his first royal entry. He's been in the city many times. This is his first royal entry. And it is the entry in which he will be rejected as their king. There will be a second royal entry that we are waiting for. It is the next one that we get to be part of the, of the disciples following Jesus into Jerusalem through the Golden Gate. So here we have a royal entry and we left off the people crying out. They had the palm branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him. I want you to notice that, that they took them with them. It was not an impromptu thing. They took palm branches with them to meet him. They brought them from somewhere else. They're going to encounter Jesus Christ. They are prepared in their mind and heart to do this act. This was not a happenstance act. These people had made a decision that this man who can raise people from the dead, can you imagine the power of that? No army could stand against you. He can feed thousands. No siege can stop you. Who else would you want as your king? If the Romans cut down a thousand, he resurrects them, and you have a new army the next day. If they build siege works around your city and try to starve you out, he turns stones into bread. Or little fishes into lots of fishes. Of course you would want him as your king. And they came ready to make him their king with one obvious exception. And we're going to encounter them here in a little bit. We already have been told about them. The chief priests, the Pharisees, um, so they're coming prepared to do this. And they come with this declaration, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So this is right out of Psalm 118. Now the word Hosanna, you sang it today. Um, you talked about children. The song talked about the children singing it. John doesn't tell us, communicate that to us. Um, children were saying this, but so was everyone else. Hosanna had kind of become a, uh, a, a figure of speech um, that incorporates really a whole verse of Scripture into one word. It kind of had, had compressed it into this figure of speech that was commonly used. And... Um, we, we have those that you don't even recognize um, that you use, uh, uh, that we have condensed whole sentences down to one or two words in our figures of speech in our own language that we don't even understand sometimes what we're saying. Uh, but that, I don't think that was the case here. 
um, because they're quoting the next verse. Let's go to Psalm 118. This is what they're quoting from. Psalm 118. Let's pick up in verse 22. 22, 23, and 24 are the verses they didn't understand. They, didn't, they made the connection to the next few verses, but they didn't catch Psalm 118, 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. The stone which the builders rejected is about to become the chief cornerstone. They have not understood the necessity of the rejection. But they do know the next few verses. Verse 25 says, Save me, I, save now, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. And all of that verse is compressed into one word, and that one word is Hosanna. What they are saying is save us and give us prosperity. And that whole concept of being delivered from my enemies and granted the blessings of God on Israel has been wrapped up in one term in Jewish language, and that is Hosanna. What they were saying was save us from our enemies and bless us with all the material prosperity that Israel has been promised. We're coming to you looking for deliverance from, in their mind, I believe, more of the Romans. I believe the true followers of Jesus Christ could easily say, save me now from what? My sin, from the evil one, from this world. Certainly that's here in the text. And Lord said now prosperity. And so this verse um, is what they're communicating. We want your deliverance and we want the prosperity that comes with that deliverance of freedom and wealth and food, all those things. We want deliverance and prosperity. Hosanna! This is what they cried out. It is a compression of verse 25 into this one term. And again, we have those in our language as well. If you knew the history of some of our phrases and words and find out what they really mean uh, and where they are derived from, you'll find that you're compressing often two or three sentences into one word. Of course, now we compress that into a few letters. <laughs> As texters do now, right? C-U-L-O-L. <clears throat> so that's what they've done. Save us, we pray. Send now prosperity, we pray. Then they quote verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Actually, the first half of this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is the next declaration that they make. If you are the one that, can, that is going to bring deliverance and prosperity, then we are decrying, declaring, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We are making that our declaration, that, that blessed are you, we're, we're willing to receive you. 
We want that. We want to be delivered, and we want prosperity. So bless you. You're the one that's going to bring that to us in this. And then they add this section that you will not find, really, in Psalm 118. And that is to identify who he, that he is. They're going to accept him. And if you go back to John 12, the king of Israel. Because the pharisaical teaching is that the one who does this will be the king of Israel of David. The descendant of David uh, will be that. So the one who comes in the name of the Lord who will bring deliverance and prosperity is the king of Israel, the son of David. And so thus they're declaring this with all and with, with full preparation. This was not impromptu. They brought the palm branches. They were ready to engage in this. They knew who they were meeting. They knew what was going on. And the Pharisees were distraught. They're like, what is going on here? And of course, Jesus in the other Gospels says, if they try and say, tell them to be quiet, tell them to be quiet. He says, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks will sing it. So what they are declaring is absolutely from God's word, is a fulfillment of prophecy but did they understand what they were saying as such is the question. Remember, John has already introduced us to this concept that you can say something, the Spirit can even move you to say that, and you not even realize that you've just become a prophet of God. Do you remember the high priest saying, one man must die for all the people? What he meant was that I'm going to justify us for seeking to kill Jesus officially, but John says, well, he didn't realize that he was prophesying that Jesus was going to die for all men. And here the people are shouting out something that might have meant something different to them, but their words are the words of Scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy, and Jesus says, if they don't do it, the rocks are going to do it, because this is what exactly what is happening, is the king of Israel is entering into the royal city with a royal entrance uh, on a royal day. This is the king coming to his land. And so they say and speak the truth that needs to be declared. Save us. Prosper us, we pray. Blessed are you come in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. There is no way they would have said this to anyone else. None of the chief priests, none of the Pharisees. This was reserved for the son of David, who they thought would be bringing in the kingdom era and returning it to Israel. The next evidence that John lays before us of this wondrous entrance is the mode of it. Not only the, the people, the multitude. I have M's here. Not only the multitude, not only the message, but the mode. You see, I've lost my, I haven't gone by my. They taught me to do this in seminary, to have really cool outlines with all alliteration and things like that, and I just get away from it. We have the multitude. Defined. We have the message declared, now the mode. The mode of transportation for, for Jesus. 
And again, this is out of Zechariah. It's in your margins there, very easy, Zechariah 9, 9. Uh, that, uh, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Let's go to Zechariah 9.9, because that's in a context. That Israel knew that context. I don't know that we do. He quotes 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Wow. That's exciting. He's not just entering Jerusalem as the king of Israel. He is entering Jerusalem as the king of Israel over the king of all the earth. He is there. Remember that Israel was not supposed to have horses and chariots. That's not where they found their strength. And so the, Jesus would never enter riding a big white horse. That was forbidden. He wouldn't do that. He rode in a gentle little foal of a donkey. Humble entrance. Humble before whom? Not the people, before God. The Father. Remember, Jesus is coming as the obedient Son. The Son of David would be the one that would come humbly. As we're going to see later on, we're going to get into some of the Isaiah passages uh, of the humiliation of the Son of God. Uh, capital S servant, Jesus Christ. And so we find that he comes in and the chariot isn't going to be used. The horse isn't going to be used. Um, it's not going to be through a battle bow. It's not going to be by a deliverance militarily. He's going to bring peace to the nations. Wow. And his dominion will be from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth. And I rejoice in that because that means that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord isn't just for Israel. It is for all the earth that he comes. He is the king of Israel and of all the earth. And so I get to participate in this triumphal entry. And of all the multas that are there, we find out very quickly, uh, we're going to see it next week, uh, that there were Greeks there. There are people from Greece there. Greek-speaking people, probably from all over the region. But there were Greeks there. And they, they wouldn't have been on the forefront. They were kind of back in the back. But they're there. And the next day, they want to go talk to Jesus themselves. Do we have a place in your kingdom? And the answer is yes. He has bring peace to the nations. Plural. To all peoples. And thus John tells us that this, is, this mode of coming in speaks 
to the prophecy of Zechariah to say that he is coming in with justice, having salvation that is for all the nations, that is from sea to sea, that is from the river to the ends of the earth. It is for all people that he has come as king, but not as a conqueror, but rather as a deliverer of peace, salvation, and justice. This is how he comes. Gentle, riding on a colt, not a chariot. Doesn't have the battle bow drawn on his enemies. No, he's coming in. Receive me or don't. I'm not going to force you. And the people respond. The disciples didn't get it. It says that in verse 16. They remembered it later. (laughs) That happened a lot. Verse 17, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Remember that Jesus has been inviting people to believe in him. He says, if you won't believe in who I am, if you won't believe in what I say, at least you should believe in what I've done. And remember that we talked about the gradation of belief in John. That the lowest level of belief is to believe the sign. The next level is to believe what he had taught. And the, and the highest level of belief is to believe that in who he is. Well, what John just communicated to you is that even his own disciples didn't get who he is at this point. And the people that were there that even were eyewitnesses of Lazarus' resurrection, they didn't really believe in Jesus. They they believed in the signs. So we have this wonderful prophetic event you might say, how in the world are we going to go from this to crucify him, crucify him a few days later? Because this is the horrible danger of this first level of belief. It can be turned into a mob against the very one you believe in. How does Judas betray his Lord, who he has followed for years? Well, he's been stealing the whole time, so that tells you a little bit of his character. But to betray him to death. How do these people, the multitude gathered, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, then shout out, Crucify him, crucify him a few days later. Very simple. They believed the sign. And if he didn't keep up the signs, their belief would turn against them. They did believe the sign, and that should have developed. And the next thing is no mistake that there are no more signs until his resurrection in the Gospels. There are no signs that Jesus gave from the triumphal entry to his crucifixion. Um, There's none of them. He gave a lot of teaching. Why? The pinnacle of signs was done to Lazarus. 
The evidence was all there. Everyone knew it. Even some of the faithful disciples of the high priests and Pharisees stopped following them and started following Jesus because of that sign. But they did not take the next level when they heard his teaching that we're about to engage in. Our, our, we're going to be getting into his teaching in a couple weeks. Um, we're going to leave the narrative because John leaves the narrative of what's happening. We have a huge portion of scripture. It's going to take us months to go through it of his teaching during that week. Yes, it's going to take us months to do what Jesus did in days because I'm not Jesus. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say. Um, it's just going to take us months to get through 13, 14, 15, 16. I mean, we're not going to get back to the narrative for that long. Okay, 17, somewhere in there. Um, so we got chapters to study that Jesus taught his disciples. He taught the multitudes. He taught the eyewitnesses. He taught the, the, all the pilgrims that had come in from all the regions. He taught them to bring them from just trusting in signs to trust in him in his teaching, that they might then trust in him as who he is. The highest level of belief. That I believe in Jesus is God. My God. My Lord. My Savior. Not just a prophet, a great prophet, not just sent from God, but God incarnate, who rules me. And I surrender to his will. And so Jesus is going to move from signs to teaching to who he is with the final declaration being made to correlate with the declaration made on this event. What is the final declaration made about Jesus in the Passion Week? It was, it was made by a guy named Pilate who said, Behold, the King of the Jews. He made sure it was in a couple languages because this is the king of all the earth. Behold the king of the Jews. He comes gentle. He comes with justice, salvation. He comes for all men. He is Lord of all the earth. He comes for peace. This is what the angels declared at his physical arrival, Bethlehem, peace on earth. This was his calling, and he's going to refer to that in the weeks to come, a couple of weeks from now, three weeks from now. This is why he's here. He's the king of the Jews. Hosanna, Lord save us and prosper us. Israel just had the physical stuff, the national, the geopolitical stuff in their head. But their mouths declared the truth of God. And that is what we seek. Not a geopolitical salvation and prosperity. But we seek that which is not of this earth. We seek deliverance from our sin. From death. From misery. From the pointlessness of a, and, the, and the disparity of a life without Jesus Christ. We seek deliverance from that, that we might prosper spiritually. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us, prospers us spiritually. Hosanna. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for this opportunity to worship you. And we pray that we might do it with all of our hearts, that we might declare your word not with our own wrong beliefs, might do it according to your spirit's truth, might do it without understanding, unlike the disciples that didn't understand what's going on. Lord, we have your spirit within us, Lord, we should do it with understanding. Help us to sing, to worship, to declare your truth with understanding, not only of our minds, but of our hearts, our spirits. Lord, save us. Let your peace go out from this place to the nations. Blessed is your name. For you have come in the name of the Lord for our good. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.